Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Cody Royal, author of The Tough Stuff and also podcast and host of the famous podcast Where Others Walk. Cody, welcome to the show. Connor, thanks for having me, mate. It's nice to meet you and uh, really appreciate the invitation to come on. No, um, I mean, we've already been discussing briefly off air, but obviously a big fan of your work and long may it continue. But obviously we look at this in tw- early 2022 now, Cody, you obviously hold a nuanced and privileged position and perspective within the coach profession. I suppose the question in everybody's lips really is where and kind of how did it all begin? Well, you were just sharing your story with me beforehand about getting into coaching young, and that's my story too. Uh, you know, I was a uh, an elite AFL player. I was in the Victorian squad at every age group that you can be in the Victorian squad, uh, which if you know anything about Aussie rules football, I, I think still well over 50% of draftees come out of Victoria, so, you know, the state around Melbourne. Uh, and I didn't get drafted. So I'm probably still one of the only people to have made all those squads and and (laughs) never made the top level. And that caused me to fall out of love with the sport, quite frankly. And it was coaching that made me kind of reignite my, my passion for Aussie rules. And so I was coaching at 23. And so you know, kind of sitting here now with 15 years of coaching experience at the age of, you know, 38. Um, Yeah, it was a little bit happenstance in that, you know, I just happened to take on roles and then got an opportunity to coach open age men really early. That led to a national team. And uh, so, yeah, it's just kind of been, as we're talking about beforehand, walking through doors when opportunities presented themselves and then a little bit of also creating opportunities in the coaching space as well. And 15 years of coaching is quite a long time. Has your why changed throughout that period in terms of you started as that, you know, eager coach willing to dive in, willing to learn everything possibly at the risk of overkill at the start to the position where you are in today now, where you're not only optimizing yourself, but optimizing the league coaches. Yeah, I mean, the why didn't exist when I started. There was no such thing. We weren't talking about, you know, this, you know, kind of uh, high level, um, aspirational, uh, thing like we are now, it was, you know, a little bit about the game, uh, you can structure the game, you know how to deliver messages, you can build training plans, that kind of thing when I started. And so I very much started in that mold and I thought that the game was all about X's and O's and I could do that at a, at a really high level early on. I understood the game from a space and a perception perspective when I was really young Um but now having moved through, you know, coached uh, open age men, uh, international men where they're learning the game, having coached some, you know, juniors that have gone on to get drafted, you know, in the top 10 in the AFL. Um, yeah, it's, it's certainly made me think more about why I'm, I'm doing it and what I'm hoping to get out of it. Um, the goal was always to be one of the first non-playing coaches in the AFL. Uh, and that's, certainly changed now and much more about impact 
uh, on on the people that I'm working with uh, on a day-to-day basis, which now is head coaches, hilariously. And were there possibly any key milestones in terms of how that why changed in terms of your main goal being, I want to call, I want to be the first non-AFL playing coach out there to what you're actually doing now. Or was it something which you were led to reflect upon throughout just working in the game? Honestly, I think it was probably through starting my own podcast and going on the adventure that I've been on with where others won't that probably made me do the reflection. So that was my own coach education. So, you know, there's no AFL coaching conferences to go to in North America. And so I decided to create my own and, you know, having access to people like Adam Grant and Dan Pink and, uh, you know, uh, authors, academics, head coaches, uh, you know, they speaking to them, as you know, challenges your own ideas. And so I think my acceleration has been rapid by having access to those, those kind of people. And that's probably changed my perspective from a very goal oriented, you know, I want to be this and I, and I want to be, you know, there's a time element to mine as well, the first, um, that no longer, no longer exists. Um, so maybe maybe my answer is a little bit of both through having access to certain people and, and speaking to them and then also the fact that uh, that time has elapsed and I've gotten more mature as I've gone along as well. Fascinating to unpack. Um, however, I wanted to draw your attention, in fact, to one statement which you've made on a recent podcast, Cody, where you say, I believe coach optimization is the greatest barrier to team success in elite sport. With that at its pillar, could you please take us inside some of the techniques and practices, in fact, that you use to help coaches unlock more of who they are? Yeah, so I do believe that. I actually think, you know, I think a lot of what we've been trying to do with teams has kind of commoditized itself. So, you know, fitness came along and for the most part, we've, we've figured that out and, you know, we're talking about, 0.01% improvement and ultimately, you know, teams are winning because they, they don't have the injury toll that other teams have. And so, you know, a lot of things have balanced out over time, resources, salary caps, soft caps, all that, that kind of thing. But one area that hasn't been explored has been the actual coach themselves, the head coach and their own optimization as a, an individual and also as a, you know, a master technician, a lot of these guys and girls are in the top 30 in the world at what they do. And there's a lot more left in them. Uh, and I think the, the kind of emotional toll and the physical toll that's taken on them um, means that they don't have access to their primary coaching skills. And so the, the process that I go through isn't too dissimilar to how you coach players we go through and, you know, you, you want to talk to the player and, and understand where they're starting from, where our relationship is starting from, where they think they can improve, where they, where they know their super strength is, whether they're put into positions to use that super strength, what the barriers are to all these different facets of, of their craft. For coaches, that tends to be 
that they're just uh, they start off as as downtrodden. Um, usually, it's the organisational politics or the organisational dynamic is a key uh, pillar in that there is so much, pardon my friend, bullshit going on in the organisation that they can't even get to the coaching bit. So the or when they do, it's far below expectation, like their own expectation of themselves. And so, you know, there's a process of going through to, to try to remove some of those barriers, but then also your pretty standard, you know, optimization ideas like, okay, well, what, what gives you energy throughout the day? You know, is it, is it going for a walk? Is it going for a run? Is it reading a book? Is it hanging out with your son? Is it just being in the sunlight? Is it quiet time? How do we find times to get that on the, on your calendar and how do we keep you accountable to those and really going through and almost line by line doing an audit of what they're up to, all with the idea of getting them closer and closer to their natural talent to, to coach and their ability to, you know, have access to their awareness, have access to their decision-making and have access to their communication skills as the, the primary coaching skills for a, a team sport coach. Sounds as though you were not entering that conversation though as the protagonist in terms of asking questions more or less that they need somebody that perhaps who just needs to listen and be there for them it just sounds like unmet needs and we know most of these organizations Cody right they have no shortage of terms of resources but perhaps the attention just really needs to be redirected a bit more efficiently um, in terms of the coaches you deal with, is there any, I suppose, opportunities for greater dialogue with the organisation as to how to better coach, not how to better coach the coaches, but better coach the people who are responsible for the coach's welfare? Yeah, definitely. Uh, just to your first point, it boggles my mind and, and I point this out pretty regularly, you know, how much everyone wants to look at every single X and every single O that Pep Guardiola um, and, and Eddie Jones, you know, put out onto the field and that they all spend the whole week in between games on coach paint, drawing circles around everything and arrows. But the reality is, is uh, Pep Guardiola has his own full-time coach that's dedicated to him that works internally at Man City, Manel Estiate and Eddie Jones has his own full-time dedicated coach that works with him, Neil Craig. And so if you want to copy something that these guys are doing, the top echelon of coaches in the world, you, you kind of have to look at the whole ecosystem about how they're preparing themselves um, more so than whether, you know, Pep's wingbacks come inside or, or overlap. Um, so, you know, that, Sure, they fit together, but um, you also need to look at at uh, how they're preparing themselves as well. So the answer to the question is, yeah, absolutely. There's there's huge opportunity for organisations, and a lot of these organisations, you know, have multiple coaches that this could benefit. It's not really just the head coach, but I've specialised in that role for what I do. So I only work with head coaches. And that's because they have, one, the power to make change for themselves in that they're not really taking direction from anyone else in terms of how they organise their day um, or how they, they think. And then, um, you know, also just uh, 
uh, you know, they have the influence for what they're doing to flow down to assistant coaches, academy coaches. So they, you know, them going home early on a Friday, you know, match day minus one has a knockdown effect to everyone else. And so I'm trying to work with the, the real influences, which is, yeah, the head coach. Yeah, and I think there's a danger in the prescription is in the dose, really, when even I can say within the current environment, which I am, in terms of Dubai and United Arab Emirates, there's a lot of freelance coaching. I think we as coaches have a responsibility that when we sign up to be freelance coaches too, like a common misconception is, you know, we're judged by the value of our work, right? But the value of our work is a unit of work. What's a unit of work? You're getting paid to coach on an hourly basis. So if you get what I mean, Cody, the coaching points start to become a lot more redundant. You're doing things for the sake of doing them. It's not part of the overall package in terms of the more holistic development side of things. But I also wanted to draw you back to your last podcast, which you did on Where Others Won't, with Owen Eastwood, which was fantastic. And I would implore everybody to listen. And you spoke about the old adage of the one self-aware person in the forest. Easy, easy prey for the wolf, right? But if you have a second self-aware person with them, it's not that they're not easier prey, but they can work together to fend them off. So getting back to your original point, this is all part of the ecosystem. It's all part of the broader picture. What are clubs and what are organizations doing nowadays to bridge that gap? Not much. Um, there, there are some very forward-thinking organizations that are looking at it from a, an organizational perspective. And, you know, they've realized whether it be through the coach that they currently have, whether they realize through the uh, abuse cases that are front page of the news. So almost being shamed into it by the fact that they've overlooked coaching and, and coaches and their development uh, for so long that now they're basically thrust into having to think about coaching because they're on the front page of the newspaper or whether they've had an epiphany. There are some, very few, but some that are really thinking about it at a high level. And they're kind of the ones that you would expect but, um, you know, the, the thing is there's so much room for it in, in every organisation. Like if you were to completely obliterate the coaching practice in a club and rebuild it, it would look very different to the way that it's built right now. If we were to do it based on what we know from a scientific perspective, what we know from a coaching perspective, I think we would hire differently. I think we would plan differently uh, i think we would allocate our resources differently within the club to coaches and so you know in greenfield environments where there's kind of nothing we would do vastly different things to what we're doing currently so um yeah there's uh, i think that's ultimately my point is there's a lot of organizations that aren't thinking about this and they also have no appetite for change anyway what's the smallest possible step they can take An organization? Yeah. I think having an awareness that there's a problem because there is a problem 
uh, at the and I'm talking at the elite level uh, again. My my context isn't uh, youth sports. It isn't um, amateur sports. I, I deal with uh, open age uh, professional sports, and a lot don't have any idea that there's an issue with coaching or coaches. It's just not in their awareness, and that's really what maybe two of the chapters in the tough stuff were trying to point out was, and I, I could have kept going. They, I, I stripped them back because it felt like I was punishing whoever was going to read it with all of the crap that I could have written about. So I did strip it back. I could rewrite the whole book again with new examples, but there is a problem here. And what I'm trying to do is say, let's not wait for something drastic to happen to rectify it uh, because unfortunately like it's it's getting pretty close to something drastic happening to one of the coaches and we don't need to wait that long to make the change we have the resources as you said we have the awareness that there, most of us have the awareness that there's something wrong we just need the appetite to change it and i think a big problem about this quality too is that it seems to be a universal one-size-fits-all you know, the questions we ask of coaches, the demands we put upon them are universal. But in most instances, the answers to them themselves have to be individual, right? Seems as although, you know, we've been sidetracked down this road of needless complexity for years, when all along it's simplicity, it's humanity, basic fundamental values that seem to be the answers. For the coaches which you coach, how important is the role of unlearning? to move that step forward. Yeah. I mean, it's probably, it's one of the biggest steps I would say, particularly early on is the unlearning piece. And, you know, the, the thing is that well, I hear all the time that, that head coaches don't want to learn. You know, people come to you and say, oh, I'm stuck in their ways. They don't want to learn it. That's not been my experience at all. I speak at conferences all around the world and the people that are the most uh, enthusiastic or will drive across the whole city the next morning to have a coffee with you and potentially maybe miss their flight because they've done that just to have a conversation about something that you said on stage are head coaches. And so they will learn. They just, they're not going to listen to everything that is thrown at them. And so the, the, when you start to, direct their attention around some things that maybe they need to unlearn from what they picked up through their playing or early coaching career about what coaching is. That's one element. Often, unfortunately, it's unlearning a lot of what they got on their badges. Um, and then also just social elements in terms of behavior and human behavior because there's a lot in that package as well, especially nowadays where you've got international teams. And so you have to understand cultures, literally, you know, 20 something countries coming together in a football team and having to understand the, the uniqueness of all of those different cultures and the nuance to their communication and the nuance to how they are motivated and socially motivated or individually motivated. And that can differ between whether someone's from a you know particular part of the world and now bringing that back together 
that's a very different narrative than, you know, coaching in the fifties where everyone was probably an American and you just kind of used war examples and say, get out there and we're going to go to battle. And you know, it's far more nuanced now. And so, you know, unlearning that kind of rah, rah, rah and teaching coaches or directing their attention back to the craft and the humanity and, you know, the, the nuance of what we do is, I mean, that's really what I do. In terms of Cody Royal, I suppose, what were the key pivotal moments for you in terms of making that move from Australia to Canada? Firstly, what did you have to unlearn? And then secondly, in terms of changing your why, having that wrapped up in your identity, wanting to become that first non-playing AFL coach to know what you do, which is unbelievable, providing elite coaches with that top support network. What did you have to unlearn? Yeah, I mean, I came to Canada because uh, Australia is a big island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and we're insulated. We don't have any neighbours technically, right? There's no, not attached to anyone. New Zealand is the closest and Papua New Guinea and from where I'm from in Melbourne, and that's a five-hour flight. So, you know, you're very remote and, and so unlearning that, well, you know, particularly what we're fed by the media about our own importance in the world was why I, I wanted to leave because I wanted to go and experience it and see, do people care that we have a, you know, an election <laughs> on at the moment or that this person did this? And so, you know, very quickly you learn when you're away from home that no one gives a shit about Australia and what they're up to and whether they've got an election on. Um, and so I wanted to go and experience that from the other side and you know the the process for me has really been almost 18 years I think of trying to undo that connection to not being drafted as as a player because that was what I'd attached all of my identity to like I, none of the university courses interested me whatsoever and so when you're an 18 year old kid and you only have one goal and it's to do this one thing and you don't get the opportunity to do that and there's nothing else that's particularly interesting, yeah, <laughs> you're you know, pretty far down the river without a paddle. And I probably spent 18 years, including a vast majority of my coaching, trying to reattach my identity to a, achieving something in particular because I was just replicating the pattern that I had as a player. And so, like I said, probably through where others won't writing that book, starting that podcast, that started to change, became far less about achieving something in particular and far more about the impact that you have on, on other people and, and having joy in those like small wins. And you envisage this as a continuous ongoing process, Cody. The, the changing of the why? Yeah, in terms of learning, in terms of unlearning, in terms of changing of the why, um, you mentioned the podcast and the book as a great sounding board to check fundamentally your narrative, check what you're learning, check whether it stands up to practice itself. But for you, do you envisage that ever stopping? I don't think so. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a new father 
so I've had to unlearn a lot in the last year um, and, and relearn a lot. And, you know, that's just another example of, you know, it being thrust uh, upon you, like the change. And, and you can either lean into that or you can, you know, push against it. I'd rather lean into it. That's what I've done, you know, since I left Australia is, is really try to create opportunities and, and learn consistently and upskill consistently. And so, yeah, that's another example. And I don't know, you, you, you had a, a second child and then it changes again. And then, you know, and you buy the house and it changes again. And you, uh, I don't know, get a call one day out of the blue from, uh, from an NFL team. Do you want to come and work for us in a new city? And you, uh, it changes again. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't see why not. And then the second piece to that is I, I actually have no concept of wanting to retire like i actually want to keep working and keep challenging myself later in life like i'm not trying to get to 65 i, I want to go well through 65 and whether that's writing books or whether it's actually working or whether it's you know just continually learning uh, i think it's such a great way for us to have some longevity and some um impact in the world to to keep going so that's kind of my perspective at the moment especially yeah you speak about curiosity speak about love of learning and these are fundamental traits and characteristics which every club every organization or sport and body should be kind of welcoming and taken on board with their coaches but nonetheless we all know moments of success in any sport in this industry are quite fleeting and something which you speak about really well on your podcast is the weight of coaching. It's something which is even the likes of Bill Walsh, Sir Alex Ferguson. I mean, can you earn the stripes as a coach by putting in all these hours in terms of we look at these great figures like Bill Walsh, Sir Alex Ferguson. You have recent documentaries, recent books about the pair have indicated it wasn't all rosy and garden. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot and and I get it. You know, I'm a I'm a highly analytical coach. I, I was building my own statistical models with my best mate in our living room in 2005 and like I said I I was the kid that was obsessed with Xs and Os and so I'm I'm that way minded. And um and so it's funny that I've become a little bit of a lightning rod for coach wellness on the, the other end of the spectrum. But what that means is like, I, I hate people using the term balance in what we do uh, because professional sport doesn't have balance and never will. We're not searching for work-life balance. We're searching for greater balance. So it can be, if you think of a, a seesaw, Right, the, the seesaw right now is fully down on one end and fully up on the other. It can be more equally balanced. It's never going to be horizontal uh, because if you think that there's going to be work-life balance working for an NBA team where you play 82 games and you're flying uh, you know, every second day, this is not the industry for you. And so let's not pretend that, that there's any semblance of balance. But what there can be is better. And what that might mean is, uh, you know, uh, Mikel Arteta has recently talked about, I think he gets into the office at 9 a.m. And it's after, you know, making breakfast for his kids. 
that is better than 6am having not seen the kids and they don't even know that you exist and and i think that's what we're aiming for you know we 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 don't want another bobby robson where his son is on his documentary being like i actually have no idea who this man is right <laughs> and so and maybe it is just breakfast with your kid making breakfast for your kids that that is is better um and so small changes but i yeah i, I don't think we should be cha- uh, chasing this this version of like work life balance where we're actually doing far less than we need to. True. true. The caveat I would have, however, is when we speak about high performance, people are awful limited in their interpretation of that word, Cody, and they reflect on that person in their incarnation in whatever job they're in. For me, it's about the holistic performance or the holistic development of that individual. And I think luckily now we're starting to see a lot more coaches a lot more people working in the sporting industry that have done that work in themselves in terms of understanding their values their mission their purpose but for such a long time we're seeing people just sleepwalking into these into these roles into these jobs and at times it is a blind love for the sport itself and yeah i do agree fundamentally that there is no real balance i mean for me in terms of my own role within what i'm doing now to the ordinary person in the street, you could not say it's balanced. But however, do I love what I'm doing? Of course. Does it energize me? Yes. And fundamentally, those are the two most important questions I can answer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, understanding your, you know, and and as we've been talking about, your your values and what you value in general can change, right? And so I think it's the awareness of what you're getting yourself into, whether you have the energy for that, and then saying no when your answer is no. Right? And so becoming a mercenary coach um, that takes every opportunity might be okay at a particular time in your life. <laughs> becoming, the, becoming the coach that rescues teams from, from relegation for, you know, in exchange for money to set your uh, family up for the rest of their life might be okay at a particular time in your life. Uh, it might actually energize you. That that's that's okay too. But I think to your point, it's having the awareness to know that, and then when it doesn't align, you you say no to that opportunity. And you think in elite sport, we've done enough to create a safe haven to have these conversations. We haven't, uh, and, and you know, again, I, I I also think as as head coaches, I don't think we've done a particularly good job of outlining what it is we do, what we require, what clubs can do to help us. I think we've been quite insular. We don't explain to the fans what coaching is, um, and so we also can't really be grumbly if we're not willing to share, you know, what the challenges are, what actual coaching is, explaining tactical moves, explaining why you made substitutions. You know, we've shut all that down to protect ourselves, to not have to deal with the newspaper headlines. But what that means is that no one understands. 
Uh, and so, you know, I think there's opportunities for us to meet owners halfway. There's opportunities for us to meet fans halfway. There's opportunities for us to meet players halfway and, and you know, explain to players what coaching is outside of your game model, right? So everyone gets up and because their, their badges have taught them a game model and some drills, they're like, this is what I believe. And that's not coaching. That's, that's a part of it. But, you know, that's not being a head coach is just chucking up a couple of, you know, here's how we want to uh, press in the forward third. <laughs> like anyone can do that. Surely you've got more behind it and explain that to the players and, and um, you know, how you're going to react to certain things and, and what the process is going to look like. And I think when we start to meet people halfway, I think we're all going to be in a better spot for that as well. And are there any organisations that are perhaps engaged in this best practice model at the moment, Cody? Well, it's hard to tell because you, if they are, you're probably not going to hear about it. Yeah, and you're you're not in demand, really. <laughs> you know, in, in an ideal and fair world, perhaps a bit unfair to say your role wouldn't exist. This is the thing. It's like that old adage about teaching a man how to fish, right? No, that's exactly that's exactly it. It's not unfair to state that at all. The role that I currently have shouldn't exist. You envisage that changing? Not anytime soon, but perhaps within your lifetime? Uh, I think it'll be slow, but it can speed up. Like anything else in sport, it's a copycat. And so... What will happen eventually is someone will win uh, doing what I'm doing and there'll be a, a newspaper article or an interview or something that is kind of held up as a little bit of a, a bastion and then like Moneyball and like strength and conditioning and like sports psychology and like everything else before it, people will say, well, that's the way. Well, and Sorry to interrupt, but you don't want to have that idea prostituted against its very value. And this is the danger for me that we're, you know, it's great to see the work you're doing and countless others are. But what I find is sometimes for most people within the industry that exist on the outsides, it's just an easy click on social media. It's like, oh, we'll just kick the can down the road even further. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So I'm, I'm really interested in how this world evolves. Uh, I think there's, I mean, the optimum model is, is to have this role internal and have coaches who want to be coached and demand to be coached and demand to have their own person with them dedicated full-time, like, like a Guardiola, like a Jones. So not everyone's going to have the resources to do that, but I think that's really the, the optimum model. And that person then once internally can also have obviously a, a huge knock-on effect to uh, coach development, coach education. I call it coaching performance. So, you know, the, the well-being of all of the coaches, not just the head coach and the, the education of all the coaches and the applied education, not just the researcher. We don't need more researchers. We have too much research. Um, most of which isn't particularly applicable to what we actually need. Um, and so that would be the optimum model. Some will go with that. Some already have that. Man City, unsurprisingly, 
already have that role. So, um, yeah, again, if you want to play copycat, the, the examples that you would want are already in place. And now it's up to everyone else to either follow or say, no, nah, that's crap. We, we don't need that. We, we pay the coach a lot of money to put up with all this crap and to educate themselves and to take care of their own well-being. And, yeah, those clubs will be what they are. I suppose as the days of the autocrat come to a close and we're speak, since we're speaking about the future, you're someone who's obviously also involved in the hiring process of many coaches, Cody. I mean, what qualities now are organisations looking towards and which qualities, characteristics should a future coach be looking at obtaining? Well, uh, I'll be honest with you. Um, a lot of organisations don't know what qualities they're looking for outside of the kind of traditional, you know, what the system pumps out, which is, you know, a game model and it doesn't go much further than that. And so, you know, that's, that's a, a good place to start is what else does the role entail? <laughs> and, you know, particularly for a head coach now, the role is so big that a lot of them don't coach. Like it's shockingly small amount of actual coaching that head coaches do. And so the first thing that, that I would really look for is, um, you know, understanding of organizational dynamics because a head coach these days is really a CEO. So their job is to work across pillars of the organization, um, whether that be the performance pillars or the, the business pillars, um, you know, creating um, overlap between them so they're not fighting against each other, uh, organising, coordinating. You've got all the logistics. You've got all of the planning falls under. You know, you've got analytics now. You've got all these departments of PhDs. And so that's all organisational dynamics that, again, your badges don't teach you that stuff. Uh, you kind of need to learn along the way and uh, a second point would be someone that can speak confidently whilst being the face of the organization uh, and that's not necessarily always about the game so i look at what thomas tuchel is having to do right now in terms of um being the face of chelsea and shockingly, no one has come down really from the front office to help him. He's being asked to talk about geopolitics and uh, governmental sanctioning of, uh, of finances and coaching a football team and um, has kind of been left to his own devices. And so it, you better be pretty strong at... <laughs> at navigating those kind of things because they can just appear out of anywhere and it has nothing to do with like I said you know overlapping wing backs or <laughs> um or you know pushing an extra person into the midfield <laughs> right and uh, you know um and the, the third piece which I was tweeting about the other day which I think is is where this question might have come from but um I look for coaches that understand what they actually believe and aren't just regurgitating someone else's drills. So my, I get sent a lot of game models. I get sent a lot of pictures before, you know, I also help coaches get jobs. And, and so I look through a lot of presentations and my first question is always the same is where are you in all of this? All of these 
you know, structures and going to play, you know, four four two and this and that. I want to know where you are. Why do you believe these things? Why do you believe that this team should play this way? Um, because you know, a lot anyone can just assemble drills that they found along the way that famous people have used, or go and read Bill Walsh's book and regurgitate that. But I want to know you as a person, Connor, what, like, what do you believe? Why do you believe in this particular thing? And if you can get those things, I think you're on a pretty good path as an organisation that's hiring a new head coach. And in terms of the percentage of uptake in that, Cody, in terms of people that are authentic to their game model, in terms that have done the work in their values, what would you say that to be? very small percentage i don't know i don't know about giving it a value but yeah um not a lot not a lot even really have their own values kind of mapped out um, and is this across yeah. multiple sports or is this across just a select few so i, I work across team invasion sports and this is mapped out across different continents, different countries, of course. Yeah, um, yeah, Olympic sports, professional team sports. Um, yeah, and again, you know, the the the, the old. Uh, I keep kind of going at at badges, and and I don't mean to, <laughs> um, you know, keep calling them out, but really the 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 there's the old saying, you know, every system is perfectly created for what. Um, the outcomes that it's getting and so our coach education system is perfectly created for pumping out coaches who think that tactics are everything about the game and so that's what you get at the end the result is that there's no uh there's very rarely any factoring in of even emotion as a category for the coach themselves or the team um, you might get lucky and you might go through the German system and they spend a lot of time on psychology. Um, but for the most part, we're, we're just focusing on the performance outcomes of the team, uh, how to measure them and then how to deliver them and missing a lot of the, the humanity pieces. So what are, your, what are your actual values? Can your values be different as a person and as a coach? Um, should they be the same? Do they need to be the same? How are you going to manage up? How are you, you know, those kind of things. The, the system doesn't really create coaches like that. And having spent this podcast elaborating upon the culture and profession and speaking about others, Cody, what about yourself? I mean, have you any other further books or projects even in the pipeline? Yeah, I'm in the middle of writing a book right now about craft, like, craft of coaching and some of the things that again are probably missing from the way that we're educating ourselves you know the, i mean the emotional one is 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 an obvious one but there's a lot more to it right there's there's team dynamics and energy and, and things like that you know owen and i spoke about that on our podcast for for quite some time it's just a, a topic unto itself energy you know how do you read the energy of a collective there's not a lot of research behind that. A lot of it is, is to do with, you know, one-on-one -on -one exchanges. So like, can I read your emotions? We're looking at each other right now, Connor, and I can, 
you know, you've got a bit of a smirk on your face. And so I can interpret that in a bunch of different ways. But when you extrapolate that out, you know, I, I use the example of an NFL coach. It's like 53 people walk into the locker room before the game and at halftime. How do I get a gauge of the collective energy of that group? That is a coaching skill. You need to be finely attuned to what's going on there. And it might be split. They might not have a collective energy. There might be half that are worried about their contract because it's not going well. And there might be half that are energized by what happened. And, you know, the fourth receiver finally got a catch in the 16th game and he's buzzing, but no one else is. And, and so being able to put that together and decide whether to intervene, not intervene, you know, that stuff's really interesting me at the moment. I call that craft or nuance of coaching. Um, and so I'm, I'm exploring that in, in my next book, the third of the trilogy. Cody, we'll certainly have to get you back on for a pair two when it's all said and done. But um, look, absolutely excellent. Very insightful. Um, you've left me stumped on a few points, which I must go and investigate now for myself and broaden my own horizons. But for everybody listening, what I'll do is I'll attach Cody's stuff below. Um, great book, the tough stuff, and of course, his podcast where others want. Cody, thanks a million for coming on and hope to hear from you soon. Thanks for having me.